Leadership is lonely. We talked about that some last time. Moses was having all of these people that he had led out of slavery to the mountain of God, were being fed by, we called it miracle heaven bread every morning, who started to complain and grumble against him. But that's one thing. Chapter 12 is a little different because when you are a leader, you expect that there's going to be criticism and opposition. But when those who are supposed to love you the best are the ones who come against you, that becomes just about unbearable. Julius Caesar was opposed by many in the Roman Senate because they thought that this famous and powerful general was starting to accumulate too much power for himself. But Caesar believed he had at least one faithful friend in the Senate who would look after his interests and he would be okay, and that was Brutus. If you know your Shakespeare, you probably know this story. He came into the Senate on the the Ides of March, famously, and he was attacked and assassinated by all the senators. And when he saw Brutus, his friend among the assassins, he despaired and he said in Latin, et tu, Brute? That means, you too, Brutus? He saw this happening, these people attacking him. He was bleeding out on the floor. But the thing that you might say killed him was when he saw his best friend, the one man he thought he could count on, holding the sword just like everybody else. Very similar to what Judas Iscariot did to Jesus. When he betrayed Jesus in the garden, it wasn't out in front, it wasn't bold, it wasn't courageous. He gave Jesus a kiss of greeting. And Jesus said in Luke 22, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Dante wrote the Inferno, he put Brutus and Cassius, who are the the two conspirators against Julius Caesar, and Judas at the lowest ninth circle of hell, where according to his poetry, they are forever munched on by Satan with his three heads. I didn't read that part in the Bible, but you know, it's in there, in in the poetry anyway. And the point being, when we experience betrayal, when someone is a traitor, when somebody who's supposed to love us and protect us comes against us, it's like the worst thing a person can experience. A man can go out every day, deal with his boss, deal with traffic, deal with the pain in his back, if he can come home and know that his wife and kids are on his side. But a betrayal in that department can just cause his whole world to collapse. David knew about this. In Psalm 55, he wrote about the betrayal of his son Absalom and his trusted counselor Ahithophel who came against him and tried to take his throne. And he wrote, For it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me. Then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my faithful friend. We used to take sweet counsel together. Within God's house, we walked in the throng. David's like, look, I've got enemies. Philistines hate me. The house of Saul hates me. I expect that. But you... You, betrayal, conspiracy, false accusation, these are the hardest things for a leader to bear. But as we look at this story, we're going to give glory to God because God sees that. God sees the Brutuses and the Judases of your life. And God is able to establish justice for his people as he's going to do for Moses. You're going to see a side of God in this story you maybe didn't think you'd see. But we're going to learn to be loyal to one another in love. And also, when the accusation comes against you, to allow God to fight your battles for you. 
because it's much better to let God handle it than to handle it yourself. Although we will look at some real practical steps of how to handle these things when they happen. Let's begin by looking at the first three verses of chapter 12 of Numbers. Miriam, her name is first in this story for a reason, and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. So this is the, the inciting incident of our story here. We're still in the first travel section of the book of Numbers. We spent the first 10 chapters at Mount Sinai. Chapters 11 and 12, we're traveling. We're traveling to the promised land. And then in chapter 13, we're going to have another camp section. We're using a geographical outline of the book of Numbers. But in this second half, chapter 11, we had the people stirring up trouble. And now in chapter 12, Moses' own family is stirring up trouble against him. And the instigator of this story is Miriam. Miriam, if you remember from the book of Exodus, was Moses' older sister. She was the one, although she wasn't named, we don't know of any other elder sisters of Moses, she was the one who protected Moses and looked after him when his mother hid him in the reeds in the, in the Nile River. It was not like in the movies where they kind of set him adrift in a basket. They were hiding him among the papyrus reeds, and Miriam was supposed to be the lookout and make sure that nothing happened to him. And when the queen, or the princess, I should say, of Egypt found Moses, she was the one that worked out a deal for her mother to nurse Moses. And so she worked that out for him. She also was the one who led the women in singing after they crossed the Red Sea. She was a prophetess, the Bible says. And she does not have her finest hour in chapter 12. She and Aaron complain, but why... Is she going to get the most grief here? Because she is absolutely the instigator of this story. And we know this not just because her name is first, not just because she's the one that God is going to punish the hardest, but because that word spoke in verse 1, Miriam, Miriam and Aaron spoke, that word is in the third person singular. So that would be he or she said. It's not plural, not including both of them. It's only saying one. And it's a feminine verb. So while they both were in on it, the text is pointing out this was her thing. She was the one that did this. And we have seen already that Aaron was rather persuadable, wasn't he? Earlier, he had been the one that made the golden calf for the people. And it seems here he got caught up in that too. Aaron really comes across as a, a weak-willed person once they leave Egypt, which is very strange because he's the one that was speaking for Moses. Maybe Aaron found it easier to speak for somebody else than for himself. But in any case, the, gr the grammar is clear here that Miriam was the one taking the lead, unfortunately. And they give two reasons for their complaint. And we're going to look at both of them. But what we need to recognize from the way God handles this, one of these issues is a smokescreen for the other, which is very often the case, isn't it? That this argument, this complaint, isn't really about what we're fighting about. And the mark of a mature person is the ability to see through what's being talked about. So let's look at this. First of all, they disapprove of Moses' Cushite wife. He had married a Cushite woman. We only know, so excluding this passage, we only know of one wife that Moses had. Her name was Zipporah. And it could be that this is talking about her. It could be that Moses had taken a second wife. 
Could be that Zipporah had died and Moses had remarried. Seems unlikely uh, because they had just reunited. I'm inclined to think this is Zipporah, but let's look at the reasons why. Uh, she's called a Cushite. Now, Cush, we know, was one of the sons of Ham, who was the son of Noah. And Cush is where the people of Africa descended, according to the Table of Nations in Genesis chapter 10. So in the Bible, when it refers to Cush, very often it is in parallel with what they call Ethiopia or Nubia, which was a very prominent kingdoms. Ethiopia still a country to this day, but very prosperous, very powerful countries uh, in that area of Africa. And it's a very common description of black-skinned people in the Bible to call them a Cushite or an Ethiopian. In Jeremiah chapter 13, he'll say, a leopard cannot change his spots and an Ethiopian cannot change his skin. Why is he pointing that out? Because from an Israelite perspective, a Cushite, an Ethiopian, had a very distinctive skin color that was different from theirs. Now, they were not white by any stretch of the imagination, but they were Middle Eastern. They had that, that Arab look, as we would say, but they're, they're pointing out the difference. So an Ethiopian or a Cushite was someone who was black from Africa, south of Egypt and down that way. But in Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 7, there's a parallel verse. Now, when there's Hebrew parallelism, very often they'll use two different words to refer to the same thing. Okay, So he uses the term Cush, and then he uses the term Midian in Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 7, which is very interesting because we know that Zipporah was from Midian. She was the daughter of Jethro or the granddaughter of Ruel. In any case, she was from Midian. So it could be that Ethiopian was a general term or Cushite was a general term for people that lived south of Israel. Although if that's the case, this is one of the only places where it's used that way. We simply don't know. I, I'm inclined to think that this is, this is Zipporah, who was a Midianite. There is at least one other case in the Bible of Midianite being parallel with Ethiopian, which could mean that Ethiopian or Cushite could have been a broad term to describe those that were of this skin tone or from this region. So either they disapproved of Zipporah or they disapproved of a second woman who is not named who was a Cushite, an Ethiopian. In short, she was darker skinned than they were. And we can tell that for certain based on the punishment that God is going to give her, which is pretty ironic when you read the story. So this seems to be nothing more than racial prejudice based on skin color. Whether this was Zipporah, whether this was another woman who had been uh, from that part of the world that Moses fell in love with, polygamy is not uncommon in the Bible. This would be the only reference to it in relation to Moses, but there it is. You can come to your own conclusions. I want to make this point very carefully and very strongly. It seems like something that we all should know, but we are living in days where some of these things are being poked and prodded and are not being represented very well. So let's just say it for, you know, for our own sake, just to remind ourselves. God does not approve of racial prejudice. I mean, amen, that's, we, we know that, but we need to remember that. And I'm going to give you four reasons why we believe that and why we know that. These are biblical reasons. We'll mention why that's important in a minute. But first of all, the Bible demonstrates that we are one blood. There are different races in terms of how we categorize people. But as far as God is concerned, the only race is the human race. That we're all descended from Adam and Eve. We're all descended from Seth. We're all descended from Noah and his three children. Now, whether you're a son of Shem, Ham, or Japheth, you're still a son of Noah, son of Seth, son of Adam. So, we all have the same ancestry. And you know that that was something that was mocked 
about the Bible for a very long time. You know, those that are opposed to the scriptures really love to sweep under the rug all the places they were wrong. But they used to say things like, very obviously the different races of the world came from different ancestries, so the idea of one man and one woman being parents of them all is simply ridiculous. Until, of course, we began to look at the genetics, and it turns out uh, we seem to believe that there was one central ancestor from which all men and women descended. It's like, oh, really? We, yeah, we know their names. There's Adam and Eve. So one blood, right? So in, in a very important sense, the idea of race is academic as far as God is concerned. So there is no such thing as the mixing of blood as far as that's concerned. Number two, God never forbids in the Bible what we call race mixing. That is not in scripture. The only time God forbids union and marriage between two groups of people is between believers and unbelievers. That's it. Well, the children of Israel were not supposed, to, not supposed to intermarry with the Canaanites. Why? Because of the different racial? I mean, all, all things considered, we would have called them the same race by how we categorize them today anyhow. But because he didn't want them to go after their idols. He didn't want them to go after their sexual practices. So he says, you need to stay together. In the New Testament, God forbids people being unequally yoked, and he's referring to the Spirit. He's referring to salvation. Never in your Bible, I defy you to find an example, does God forbid what has unfortunately come to be called race mixing. It's never forbidden in Scripture. That's something we made up. Most of the weddings I have performed have been interracial, as we would say, and I will do it again and again and again. If that's a problem for you, it's not a biblical problem, it's a cultural one, and you need to take it to the Lord and get over it. Not only that, number three, I'm dead serious, I'm not trying to be funny. You gotta get over that. And white people don't have a monopoly on that either, brothers and sisters. Number three, God actually encourages the union of different nations among his people. So contrasting with what is usually said, look at women like Rahab. Rahab was a Canaanite. In fact, she was the first Canaanite that they encountered. And God didn't kill her. God put her in the Messianic line. Ruth was a Moabitess. And God put her in the line of David and therefore the line of Jesus. All of these things, we see this in Scripture. He encourages it, especially in the New Testament. The book of Acts is all about God bringing in different nations into his kingdom. The Ethiopian eunuch is brought in. There's your Cushite for you. Cornelius, who would have been of European ancestry, is brought in. We see Saul go up through Syria and go up through Asia and go up into Europe. And they're all coming into the kingdom together. God, in fact, encourages union of different nations in his people. And number four, the most important reason is that we are all one in Christ Jesus. There are no more relevant racial distinctions in Jesus. And that's not even something we have to attain. Just go to a different culture. You know it's true. You're brothers with each other. I don't hardly speak your language, and you don't speak mine, and we dress differently, and we eat differently, but we come together in Jesus' name. We're united together. There's a spiritual union. That's why the, Paul will say things like, in him there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, Scythian, none of that. We're all one in Christ Jesus. As long as you are marrying somebody, dating somebody, loving somebody that has bowed the knee to Jesus and put their faith in him, God approves. 
God does not approve of racial prejudice. We are one blood. It's never forbidden in Scripture. To the contrary, union is encouraged. And number four, we are all in Christ. Now, all of these ideas are things that, are, as a culture, we kind of get. And that's to our credit. Like, we, we get this one. But here's what's starting to happen, and this is very not good. We are starting to evaluate the definitions and why we do these things. And certain people are misrepresenting these lessons to such crazy extremes that some people are wanting to push back against that. They want to push back against crazy woke race stuff. And then they start to say, now, I mean, shouldn't we just be proud of ourselves and kind of distance ourselves from those folks anyway? It's a dangerous overcorrection. Don't get your moral lessons from people that didn't get them from Scripture. This is why when I was, a few years ago, when we were having all the protests and everything, I made it a very clear point. Don't take lessons from people that hate Jesus. We agree with them maybe at the end result, but how we get there matters. I even warned certain pastor friends of mine that were kind of soft on this stuff. Like, don't use that guy's books. Because he uses that same logic to push transgender stuff and gay stuff and anti-Christian stuff. And your people will read that, come to the end of it and say, well, shouldn't we just throw all this out anyway? It's not good. The biggest one is they say, well, prejudice only can go down. It can't go up. Its status is what determines. Not in God's Bible, it doesn't. There are times when Israel was on top and God rebukes them and judges them for oppressing people. And there are times in the New Testament where they are beaten down and downtrodden and Jesus says, I want you to invite your oppressors to church. But Lord, he goes, no, 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 Peter, what I have called clean, don't you dare call unclean. And there's a whole fight in the book of Acts and the book of Galatians about, do we have to make these people convert and be part of our nation and our religion? And God says, absolutely not. We learn everything we need from the Spirit. Don't you forget that. So this is the issue. They're saying he's married this, this Ethiopian, Cushite, Midianite woman, and he's brought her into our camp. And You know, the, the, the Egyptians were descendants of Cush as well, descendants of Ham as well. Uh, I don't think they were Cushites, actually. They're descendants of Ham, though. Maybe, like, it's the same thing. He's, he's married one of them. Can you believe something like that? Oh, can you believe he would... Bring a woman like that. And all these, the, remember the rabble, the riffraff from last week that caused all the trouble? Oh, he only he married one of these women, and they're the ones causing trouble. But ultimately, that wasn't the problem. That's a problem that we need to address, we need to know about. But this was an excuse. Miriam maybe have been bothered and been racist and prejudiced against her brother's wife. But that's not why she was criticizing him. She was criticizing him because she was envious. Look at what she says. Has the Lord indeed, indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? Really? You're concerned about his wife? And by the end of the conversation, you're talking about how you deserve more of a voice in the camp? That's what's really going on here. Their complaint, Aaron's and Miriam's, was that God spoke to us too. Now, had God spoken to them? Yes. Oh, yes, he had. They were not wrong about that. And so, therefore, Moses should make way for us. They're going to say this again about Moses. You take too much on yourself, Moses. God's going to send an earthquake to eat up a bunch of people later on. Perhaps Aaron and Miriam had not been chosen. Miriam certainly wouldn't have been chosen because she was a woman. But remember in the last chapter, the Holy Spirit was poured out on the 70 elders. Maybe the other guys weren't invited. Miriam and Aaron weren't invited. And they were a little ticked off by that. Those people, 
Those people, don't you know what they say about you, Moses? Don't they know what they're trying to take us down? Don't you know what his family is like? And don't you know that he's got a second family over? And don't you know that, well, I don't know, I'm just making stuff up, right? But they're, they're angry, ultimately. They weren't invited. They weren't brought to be part of that. That could be it. And so they start to criticize Moses. They start to say, Moses is acting like God only talks to him. And that he's somehow special. Hey, I'm a prophetess. I was a prophetess when he was hiding in the desert. Aaron's like, I held this country together when we were in slavery. And then he shows up like we're supposed to listen to him. And we have this thing in verse 3. None of it was true. Now the man of Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. Now, there's, there's a couple things here. Did Moses write that? Now, if you are the most meek person in the world, you wouldn't have a problem writing that about yourself. Because meekness and humility is knowing exactly where you stand in God's eyes. And you can even say something like that without being prideful. Or we know for a fact that some of the things that were written down happened after Moses' death. And there seems to be a very skillful compilation of these things. Maybe Joshua put it in there. Well, he cuts to this story and is like, and let me just say, by the way, they were wrong. Moses was the most humble guy you've ever met in your entire life. He had just said in the last chapter, I wish everybody in the camp was full to the spirit of God. <laughs> and they're complaining that he's prideful. Isn't it amazing how we always accuse each other of the thing that we're guilty of? Who was prideful here? It wasn't Moses. It was Miriam. And there's Aaron. Yeah. <laughs> going along with it. Miriam let her envy drive her to falsely accuse her brother and her spiritual leader, but she cloaked it in this other issue that was irrelevant to the situation. This was not what it was about. And not only that, it didn't mean anything. Why? Because it's like the guys that wanted to bring a charge against Daniel. They knew they couldn't find anything on Daniel. What are you going to accuse Moses of doing? So what do we do? We pick something that isn't moral, but it's cultural, and I don't like it. And it seems to you like a good way to attack somebody. This is what happens so often. When people make false accusations, we will use matters of opinion to lift ourselves up and pull others down. Because if there was something legitimate we could hold on to, we wouldn't need to be making the accusation in the first place. Isn't that so? If something is obviously wrong, people know. And people will know what to do with it. But when you feel like you've got to go around saying something about somebody, especially somebody that everybody respects, you've got to find something else. And this is kind of what was going on in Romans 14. We talked about this not too long ago, that they were having these issues of, are we going to eat vegetables or are we not? Are we going to worship on Saturday or is it okay to gather on Sunday too? The Gentiles aren't welcome in the synagogue, and, but that's kind of what we've always done. So what do we do? And they began to fight over this. The Corinthians fought over, I don't eat meat sacrificed to idols. Well, who cares? Idol's not real anyway, and I get a discount on my meat. So who cares? And Paul in Romans 14, 4 says, who are you to cast judgment on another? Who are you to judge another man's servant? Who are you to show up to somebody's house and start criticizing the way they run it? This is what we do. When we want to make ourselves look better or bring somebody else down, we'll find something else. We'll find something that is not the issue. If the pastor has been preaching things that are just a little too close to home, what do people do? Do they go on their knees and say, Lord, Search my heart and see if there's any wicked way. No, we start Googling stuff. What has he done? What did he, did he have anything weird to say? Just 
FYI, if you Google any name of any pastor or Christian organization and scandal or discernment or any other thing like that, you will always find something. You'll always find something. It's the easiest thing in the world to find because they're starting to show us up. Or maybe we don't like that they're higher than us. Maybe we feel like I know just as much about the Bible as him. Why am I listening to this guy? Maybe you're another pastor who's jealous. You tried to, you've been trying to get your church going for a long time and here comes this guy and his church is just blowing up and everybody's listening to them. Have you noticed that it doesn't matter how, what, what, how impeachable their character, unimpeachable their character is? If somebody has a big church, there's a gang of people that hate them. If something gets popular, there are going to be people that hate it. And you look for other stuff that is not moral. Did you see what, what they were wearing? That doesn't look like something a pastor should wear. Oh, look at that t-shirt. You think he actually saw that movie? I would never watch a movie like that. I saw his wife at the pool the other day, and I, I, wouldn't, I would never wear something like that. No, that's ridiculous. What is that? Look, look at that. Oh my goodness, that, that, that Christian is sitting over there. He's got a beer at the table. Oh, that's, well, I guess everything you ever said about the Bible just goes out the window then, doesn't it? They don't homeschool their kids. Oh, I've gotten that one before. They obviously don't care about the state of the education in this country. They obviously think that transgenderism is okay, and I just couldn't support some pastor that would transition his own children by sending them to public school. Did you see that? He just posted a picture online. He went to a concert, and that wasn't a Christian concert. How, how could he? Oh, my goodness. See, yeah, I know. I know he's got a lot of good things to say, but oh, I just don't know if I respect him like I used to anymore. He came out and said that Democrats and Republicans should get along with one another. He doesn't, he doesn't take a hard stand on the issues of the day. She liked that thing on her Instagram page. Very clearly, she supports and endorses everything that person has ever said ever. This is what we do. We cloak it in an irrelevant issue. Well, I saw, the, I saw that guy. I saw that Bible teacher and, you know, he was, I don't know, he was having a glass of wine. Listen, friend, I don't care if you find him passed out drunk in the gutter. You don't tell other people. You don't use it as an excuse to bring somebody down. We ought to be fearful against bringing accusations against anybody, but especially against spiritual leaders. 1 Timothy 5.19, he says, Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless on the evidence of two or three witnesses. If one person comes up and said, I saw him and he was, you know, this is what he was doing. Did anybody else see him? No? All right, then I don't want to talk about it. Well, you need to hear what I have to say. I don't, I don't want to talk about it. Then two or three people come up. We really don't like what she's been doing. Okay, well... What's been going on? And then they tell you, well, do you have any evidence of that? Well, no, but we just, we're sure it's going on. Evidence of two or three witnesses. Other than that, you have nothing to say. Jesus told us how to handle these things. Matthew 18, 15 through 17. If your brother sins against you, this is real practical, guys. If you don't know this passage, you need to do it in your life. This tells you how to handle stuff like this. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone. Start there. You and him alone. Y'all have come to me and you've come to home fellowship leaders and elders and said, hey, I think it's going to, what do we always say? Have you talked to them? Well, no, I thought I should tell you. I don't want to, no, you go talk to them first and then you can come talk to me. Well, I don't think they'll want to hear it from me. No, sorry. 
That's what Jesus said. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, and you're still concerned about it, take one or two others along with you. Have you talked to them? Yes, and they wouldn't listen. Okay, well, let's go together and let's see. Is anybody else concerned about this? Okay, they want you to take them and then come back to me. That every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. There it is again. If he refuses to listen to them, then tell it to the church. And I would say, add the church leadership in there. Then go to the leader. Don't be a tattletale. You're an adult. Handle it like an adult. And if it's that serious, and you have actual evidence, it's not just some conviction thing, then you tell it to the leadership. And then, if you really need to, then it might need to be addressed at the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, then let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. A lot of times you skip right to that last part. I'm not talking to him. I just can't be around him anymore. Did you talk to him about it? Well, no. Then you're in sin. You're in sin. Talk to him. We talk to each other in the church. That's our thing. Or at least it should be. Well, that's just, I don't like confrontation. Then keep it to yourself. If it's not worth addressing like this, it's not worth addressing. Let's say that again. Well, I don't know if it really deserves the whole Matthew 18 thing. If it's not worth addressing like this, it's not worth addressing. Let your Christian brother or sister live their life in the liberty that the Holy Spirit has given them. They accused Jesus of everything. They accused him of breaking the Sabbath. He never did. He just broke their opinions about the Sabbath. He did things on the Sabbath that made them squirm, like y'all were squirming a few minutes ago when I was using those examples. Jesus went out of his way to do that stuff. They accuse him of being a glutton. Add that to your image of Jesus. A glutton and a wine-bibber. Great word, wine-bibber. Drunkard is what that means. I've said this before. Jesus was eating and drinking so much that the people thought it was unseemly. Now, was he a glutton or a drunkard? No. But they didn't like it. They accused him, they accused him of having a demon. Nobody can talk to demons the way he does unless he has a demon. This is bizarre to hear that. Jesus thought it was bizarre too, right? They accused him of being a Samaritan. You know, first they accused, they also accused him of being an illegitimate child because Mary was virgin when he was born, right? They accused him of that. Well, which is it? Was I, you know, illegitimate in Galilee or am I a Samaritan? Which one is it? They accused him of being a blasphemer. With, man, if that's not a joke, the son of God is a blasphemer. They accuse Jesus of all kinds of stuff. And we look at those, oh, how could you say that about somebody? Y'all, it happens in the church all the time. It shouldn't happen. If you've got a serious, like, some of this stuff is just personality issues. You've got a problem with somebody's personality. So what? You don't get along. Be kind in Christ, and then don't talk so much. I just really, I'm serious about this. This is how churches fracture and break apart. Like they kind of divide along the personality types lines. Your type, type A church over here and type B church over here. And then the type A's and the type B's in this church split off and it's like this endless Russian doll thing where just the churches get shriveled up. If it's not worth addressing like that, get over it. And don't gossip. Like if you think that it's not worth addressing, then don't tell somebody. Well, listen, this isn't really that big a deal, but I did hear that he plays those video games, and you know, they're just, I would never play one like that. Really? Well, what's in it? Well, let me show you. what He does this. A lot of these things are personal stories of my own. 
You, you really would do something like that? Well, I, I, this isn't obviously that big a deal. I, just, you know, I, just, I, don't, I don't feel right about that. That's gossip. Don't do that. And the rest of you should be defenders of your brothers and sisters. Even if you would agree with the opinion they're expressing. Even if you don't think it was right that Moses married a, a Cushite woman either. You defend your brother. I just don't think it's right that, you know, Pastor Tyler speaks the way he does about these things. You know, there really is a certain decorum in the... Hey, I don't want to talk about that with you. If you've got a problem, go talk, talk to him yourself. I do that for y'all. This is... Some of you know, because, you know, you've learned this lesson from me. You say, I come, I'll just, I, I've come across something with this person. Have you talked to them? No. Well, go talk to them, and then we'll talk. I, I don't know. I really think this should be your job. As, no, it's my job as a pastor to disciple you to go do it yourself. <laughs> And you know what happens almost every time? I'll follow up. Hey, did you talk to so-and-so? Yeah, we worked it out. Cool, man. <laughs> Defend your brothers and sisters. And, and listen, y'all are great at that. I hear about this stuff all the time, and I love it so much. Where somebody wants to come in and make trouble, and one of y'all just plants your feet and is like, no, I'm going I'm to take the charge on this one. I'm not going to let this happen. Don't let this stuff get started here. Make sure that if you've got a problem with somebody that is not just your jealous heart, cloaked up in some matter of opinion, not scripture, but opinion, to make it seem spiritual. I don't like her. I want, I want other people not to like her. I don't really have anything to accuse her of, but let's talk about the way she dresses. Then I can make other people not like her. Shame on you. Shame on you. Be direct or be quiet. That's a good little... Well, think you can cross stitch and hang that over your dinner, your supper table. <laughs> be direct or be quiet. <laughs> I used to say that to our youth group all the time. Like, Here's a great verse you can cross stitch on a pillow. Be direct or be quiet. Verse four. So she accuses Moses, so does Aaron. And it says, the Lord heard. What's God going to do? And suddenly the Lord said. That struck me when I read this. Suddenly the Lord said. Moses is eating his manna burger, hanging out, and all of a sudden, the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and to Miriam, come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. Kids, get in here. And the three of them came out. And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forward. And he said, hear my words. You want to hear my words so much? You really want to hear my voice to you? Here you go. If there's a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly, and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. God takes Aaron and Miriam to the woodshed, right in front of the tabernacle, in all his Shekinah glory. They show up, and here comes the cloud. Froosh! You two, you step forward. I got something to say. And he explains, you think that Moses is no better than you? I'm going to tell you exactly how Moses is better than you. And he speaks in terms of revelation. He says, most prophets, I give them visions. I give them dreams. They're not, yeah, yeah. He goes, I don't do that with Moses. 
I speak to Moses face to face. Literally there, Hebrew, mouth to mouth. Great literal translation from the ESV there. It comes from my mouth into his mouth. Meaning when he talks, it's like me talking. This is a great little point of application. We'll get back to the story, but I just want to mention this because for theological purposes, it's important. This emphasizes why we as Christians are people of the book and not just relying on the prophets of the day. There is a distinction in scripture that we see right here between the gift of prophecy and what we would call the writing prophets. W-R-I-T, writing prophets. It's a similar distinction to what God said to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 23. Let the prophet who has a dream tell the dream. But let him who has my word speak my word faithfully. What has straw in common with wheat, declares the Lord? Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock into pieces? Listen, the Lord tells him dreams are good. Joel 2 is, I'm going to pour out dreams and visions on all my people, but there's something that is higher even than that, and it's God's word. You're holding it in your hands right now, which is why we're told to test all things in the New Testament, test the prophetic word that comes through the prophets in the church, but you do not question the scripture. There are many who received a message from God. Miriam received a message from God. Aaron received a message from God. We don't have their oracles, their prophecies written down, but it was legitimate prophecy. Most prophets in the Bible did not write anything. Agabus, for example. Elisha had schools of prophets, but only a few delivered his spoken, written word. That's the distinction. So those that say there is no more prophecy because we don't need any more scripture. Look right here. There's a distinction between the gift of prophecy and the giving of scripture, which tells us that when someone speaks a prophetic word from the Lord, a dream, a vision, a revelation, it better not go outside the bounds of what has been written because that is not happening any longer. Paul said, even if an angel shows up and tells you something different, let that angel be anathema, which is... A nice fancy way of saying that angel's going to hell. That angel is accursed. That angel is condemned, damned. You could even translate that word. Revelation 22 says, if anybody adds to these words, I'm going to add to him the plagues of this book. If anybody takes away from my words, I'm going to take away his place in the Lamb's book of life. So there's a distinction. This is important for us to know. We believe in the functioning gift of prophecy, which is God's right now word for the moment. But God's once for all word for every moment is sitting in your hands right now. There's a difference. Not that there's no value, but in comparison to this, rather have the word. So there's that. Let's get back to Miriam and Aaron getting in trouble. God rebukes them for being unafraid. He says, this guy, how I talk to him, he came down off the mountain and his face was shining and he has to put a veil over his, and you're not afraid to talk bad about that guy? What's wrong with you? <laughs> they were unafraid to accuse someone more spiritual than they were. Listen, everybody, I know that we are Americans and we believe in democracy and equality and all the rest, but the Lord has people that he sets up as authority in his churches. And beyond that, there are those that are more spiritually mature than you. And you owe them respect and honor. 
And those of you who are more spiritually mature should conduct yourself in a way that your presence commands honor from those that are weaker and younger in the faith than you. That's a rebuke that we all need to heed because we are living in what I'll call comment culture where we have in front of everything we watch and listen to, there's a little box that says, leave a comment. And so what do we do? We leave comments. It was really funny to me because I was, you know, I, I grew up on the internet in the wild west days of the internet and, you know, somewhere around 2015, 2016, like seriously, like around the Trump election, it seems like all the adults got online and they were shocked. Look at all these people. Somebody said something nasty to me online. They called me Hitler. Yeah, well, welcome to the party. <laughs> and for people my age, it was really funny at the grown-ups reaction to the stuff that, well, yeah, of course they said that. You were online. <laughs> you were on YouTube. That's, what, that's how people talk. It's been kind of cleaned up now. But that we still carry that attitude over. That not only is your opinion available to be given, it's wanted, it's expected, it's needed. You've got to speak out to those that speak to you. Not in the church. Pastors and teachers, according to Peter, are told to speak as one who possesses the oracles of God. That is in your Bible. That when I speak, I'm supposed to stand up and speak like I have God's very words. But here's the problem. Very often in today's culture, you have people that will go to a church, but it's not their church. Do you understand what I mean when I say that? This is the pastor of the church I'm going to. That's not my pastor. He's a great Bible teacher, but, you know, I listen to him like I'd listen to a good podcast. And if I disagree, I can just disagree and move on. I'm always telling you guys, check me according to the word. And that's fine. We can have some great discussions of this stuff. But there's a difference between asking questions in order to clarify and understand and asking questions because you think that your authority is equal to the man who is speaking. It's not good. It's not good for the state of the church. I mean, we're struggling with a lack of loyalty just culture-wide right now. Not loyal to family, not loyal to country, not loyal to church. That, that, that matters. And if you are going to be part of a church, you need to be part of the church. You need to be in submission to the elders and the teachers. And it, I'll tell you guys, nothing, well, not nothing. Very few things hurt as much for me as a Bible teacher. When I pour myself into the study of the word, and y'all always come in and laugh at me because when I read my, my books, I walk. Like I, I zigzag and figure eight in this room while I'm reading because, you know, I just can't sit still that long. I just, you know, pouring myself into the books and staying late. And, you know, I'll, I'll come in the middle of the night sometimes and I'll pray and, Lord, speak to these people. And then, you know, someone comes in and with like a casual comment just, slough it right off. Now, that hurts personally, but I can get over that. What's not good is when somebody who God has commissioned and called to speak, speaks, and people feel as comfortable as casting that off as they would something they saw on Fox News or MSNBC, it's a problem. But there's an equal danger here. That is when leaders who are accused or criticized decide that they're going to take matters into their own hands. All right, you want to criticize me? Let's go. And they start to rain judgment down on their own opponents. I know a friend who, um, not a friend, a friend of a friend, who was at a church, visiting church, he was at college or something, and the pastor said, you know what it says in, you know, Isaiah chapter 30, whatever, and she starts to turn to Isaiah chapter 30, whatever, and the pastor goes, hey, from the pulpit, hey, you don't got to check me. You don't got to double check me. 
You need to listen to what I have to say. Now, that's an abuse of the point I just made, isn't it? That's messed up. That's like, don't you dare question me. That's not good. Now, when someone accuses you falsely, now let's leave that stuff aside. Let's talk about a legitimate person that's doing a legitimate job, and you are accused of something you did not do. It hurts, especially if it's somebody like your brother or sister, someone who's supposed to love you and have your back. And even if you're wrong, it's like, don't do that. Just come and take me aside and say, bro, next time, just come on, you know? But when you find out that they're talking bad about you and it gets back to you, it hurts. And your anger rises. I mean, some people cry. I don't cry. I get angry. That's just how the Lord made me. And you start thinking of the most perfect, carefully crafted thing you can throw right back at them, the most unassailable defense that's also going to break down all of their defenses, and you show them, where are they now? And you got to remember not to sin in your anger, because what happens is if you blow up at a false accusation, it makes it look like the false accusation has credence, doesn't it? And somebody that was prepared to defend you sees how you react and go, is there something going on there? I mean, maybe he didn't do that, but that's not cool either. Just, you know, throwing thunder and lightning down on somebody. Look what Paul said in Romans 12, 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. That's why you shouldn't watch the Avengers movies. No, I'm just playing. <laughs> Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Which is what God is doing to Miriam and Aaron in this passage. To the contrary, Paul says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. I've already told our guys, if anybody ever shows up to protest our church, we go outside, we ask them if they want coffee, and if they want it, we give it to them. Because this is what the Lord tells us to do. If he's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You've got to be so secure in the love of Christ and what he's called you to do that no evil accusation finds purchase on you. That nobody's able to goad you or poke at your weak spot and get you to lash out. They tried that with Jesus. Jesus was the master of himself. The fruit of the spirit of self-control was active in Jesus Christ, man. Well, we know who our father is. But who knows where you come from? They were insulting Jesus' mother and his father. Saying, you, we know you. We know your mom and dad got married a little quick. And you were born a little early. So maybe we shouldn't listen to you at all. That was probably a sore spot for young Jesus, I would imagine, growing up. But Jesus goes... Don't get off subject. Your father is the devil. That's actually what he said if you go back and read it. You got to have a disdain for evil, Christian. Like when you know that the devil is working something up and coming at you, you've just got to be so disgusted. Like you've got to be kidding me. You already beat Satan. Get out of here. Now, there is absolutely a time when a leader or even just a regular person must assert himself or defend himself or defend other people. And we're going to look at this real quick. Here's going to give you five steps on how to handle a false accusation. I've been there. I've done that. I've done it right. I've done it wrong. So let's go through these. First one is kind of a cheap one. You got to act right. This has to happen before the accusation happens. You got to make sure you're living your life in such a way that you are, as to use a biblical term, blameless. There's nothing anybody can point out to you, except, to use the Daniel illustration again, except in some matter concerning his God. 
And that kind of accusation we can live with, right? First things first, you be certain that you're not going to act in such a way that you invite accusation. Because, you know, sometimes people who are trying to bring you down, when they find something legitimate, they'll push hard because they know they've got their chance and they'll kick you while you're down. So don't, that's number one. But let's, let's get to number two. Let it pass. If at all possible, do not give the false accusation any airtime. Don't let it take up space in your mind. Don't bring it up to a bunch of people. Don't make a big thing to try to handle it. If at all possible, just let it pass. Most of the accusations against Jesus, he just let roll right off his back. Because many start responding to this stuff, all of a sudden it gets more complicated. Even if you're in the right, it gets more complicated. You can trust the Lord to intervene for you. When somebody comes out publicly and says something about you, you don't got to respond. Oh, you're a coward, you're not responding. No, you're the coward for saying it in front of everybody instead of saying it to me, to my face, or I could respond to you. Don't fall for that. Let it pass if you can. Well, somebody said this about you. No, they say a lot of things. What do you have to say about this? I don't have anything to say about it, actually. Well, if I, if I don't come back, they're going to think I'm guilty. Well, then they're wrong. They're in the wrong, and God sees that. God knows. And the people that love you know, or they should. Number three, all right, if that didn't work, be forthright. Address it directly. If you've got to say something, and it gets to that point, right? You're called into your boss's office. If somebody, you know, your wife has something to say, or somebody gangs up on you at church, and you've got to say something, maybe somebody you respect asks you about it respectfully, be forthright. Speak plainly. And I'll say this too. Speak plainly to the people who are directly involved. You do not owe the internet an explanation for a false accusation. You just don't. You talk to the people directly. If somebody feels hurt, you talk to them. And listen, just, just say what happened. And you don't need to give any more information than that person is entitled to. This happens a lot when pastors have to handle messy situations. Pastors and elders of necessity cannot tell everybody every detail. But everybody wants to know, oh, how could you let that person through? Don't you know what happened? It's like, yeah, I do. You don't. We met together. We discussed it. This is the course of action we've decided upon. Well, we deserve to know what's, what's, what else happened. No, you don't. This isn't your life. I don't know if I can stick around. Then go. Because I would do the same thing for you. I'm not going to let you deny somebody else that same privilege. And unfortunately, in churches, it's the people that have been shown grace over and over and over again who don't like it being shown to somebody else. I'm not sure why. But you've got to be tough, man. So, I mean, seriously, if somebody is falsely accusing you, plant your feet and look them dead in the eye. Did you do this? No, I did not. Well, it sure looked like you did. Well, then you're wrong. Hey, what are you getting all defensive for? Because you're attacking me. That's why I'm being defensive. And here's number four. Tied to that, don't back down. Do not apologize if you have not sinned. If you are not in the wrong, don't change a thing. Why am I saying this? Because we cannot let people do this to the church where they go around accusing people of their convictions that have nothing to do with you and putting their mess on everybody else and they control everybody because in order to keep this person calm and quiet, they'll just go along with it. If you ain't done anything wrong, 
Plant your feet and don't change a thing. And certainly don't say you're sorry if you don't think you've done anything wrong and your scripture shows you you haven't done anything wrong because it won't help. Backing down to pushy, manipulative people never works. Amen on that one? You ever figure that out? When somebody's trying to get in your face with something that isn't true, don't back down. Don't be afraid. Say, it's none of your business. You should mind your own business. This is between me and her, not between us. Well, she wanted me to speak for her. Well, I, I reject that. I'll talk to her about it anytime she wants. You're not part of this. Why can't you just say you're sorry? Can't you see how upset he is? Well, he's wrong to be upset, and I haven't done anything wrong. Jesus never apologized for offending the Pharisees on the Sabbath. You broke the Sabbath. He goes, no, I didn't. Actually, he didn't even say that. He said, well, David broke the Sabbath too when he ate the showbread. Remember that, fellas? How dare you, Jesus? Yeah, I'm greater than David. He's like, what? And then on he goes, right? They're sitting there trying to figure that one out. Now, am I saying to be a jerk? No. But I'm saying you've got to be, like, look how God stands up for Moses here. If it's your kid or your wife or you, stand up. Don't let pushy people have their way in the church. You ever been in a church like that? Where there's somebody who, when they come around, man, you know, they, they make it their business to get in everybody else's business and curate their life to fit their sensibilities. This is why churches break up. This is why kids leave church. I've watched everybody bow down to this guy or this gal, and then they get in the car and everybody disagrees with her or disagrees with him and doesn't like them and thinks it's wrong, but then they all go along with it. So what kind of courage do we have in Christ anyway? And number five, here's the last one. If need be, break fellowship. If there's somebody that is going to falsely accuse you of things, and, you, and even if you've reconciled a few times, that it keeps on coming, you don't got to be best buddies with that person. Maybe as a church, we need to ask somebody like that to move along. If they're always, and it always works out, and they always apologize, but then like, like clockwork, every three months, something else comes up. Maybe you've got to break fellowship. Maybe if there's somebody who can't trust you, somebody who's your good friend, but every time somebody else brings an accusation, they demand that you prove it to them all over again, maybe that friendship needs to be less intense. And I realize that scalping is kind of a sport these days, isn't it? We call it cancel culture, and everybody loves to do it. Find something that somebody has done and then beat them over the head until they cringe and apologize. I'm so sorry. And no political team has a monopoly on that. But if you handle this kind of accusation like this, the storm will pass and God will step in and God will fight for you. How does God fight for you? Sometimes he strikes people's conscience. Sometimes people will just realize what they've done and they'll come apologizing. Sometimes you don't have to say anything because one of your boys will step up and do it for you. One of your girlfriends will step up and do it for you. Hopefully, your husband will do it for you, ladies. Maybe somebody says, I can't believe you've done something like that. Then that's when the other person comes in and goes, now you wait just a minute. How dare you say that about her? How dare you say that about him? That's what the church is for. That's how God speaks to people. Sometimes circumstances resolve themselves. Like, I can't show this to you because I can't, I'll be violating somebody else's trust. I'm willing to let you think I did something wrong, even though I didn't, in order to protect this person. Then it all comes to light and they go, well, why don't you just tell me? You should have trusted me. God gives dreams to people too. God can handle you, can't he? Look at God here. God is mad. God is angry. God is a lion in this chapter. 
That's like Jesus was a lion. When they were coming out, remember they come after Mary when she broke the alabaster flask and Jesus said, leave her alone. You think he just lifted his hand and went, leave her alone. All the, all the videos have that. She's like, Judas, back off. What's wrong with all of you? This is beautiful what she's doing here. Worried about the money. You're always going to have poor people. You're not always going to have me. That's how Jesus handled those things. Now listen, accusations are part and parcel of being alive. And also, if you're going to be in church, part of ministry. People are always going to be accusing somebody that stands up, right? Sometimes that's kind of the, the, the tallest poppy is the one that gets the head knocked off, right? Sometimes somebody who's leading is going to get attacked. But Jesus said in Matthew 5.11, blessed are you when they revile you. Blessed are you. Remember that. Look what they said about me. None of it's true. He said, hey, blessed are you when they bring all kinds of false accusations against you for my sake. That's what they did to all the good prophets. And I've had plenty of false accusations brought against me. I was a pastor's kid. And pastor's kids can get a bad go of it in church sometimes. Now, my parents handled it like champs. But I was accused at one time at my first job, one of the guys who I worked with, his wife came to the church sometimes, and she came up and she accused, you know, every time Tyler comes in, he talks about how much he hates Jesus, and he's always stealing booze out of the fridge, and now he's the biggest party animal in the world. And she, what she did was she said, you know, i got to tell you something about Tyler. And my dad goes, well, hold on a second. Tyler, come over here. No, don't go. No, no, he needs to be here. And so what happens is she told that, and I go, I don't know why he would think that. Maybe he's thinking of something else. None of that's true. And my dad goes, well, I'm, I'm going to believe my son over you. And my dad told me after I left, he goes, that was good, Tyler, but why did you let her talk so long? I was like, what do you mean? He says, you sh she was lying, wasn't she? Yeah. Well, then you should have stopped her. That's my dad training me how to do, do a good job with that. I was accused one time at a youth camp for uh, running off with a girl into the woods and doing things I shouldn't be doing at a youth camp. Did not happen. Absolutely did not happen. This one was handled poorly because you know what happened? All the youth leaders set up a little tribunal and brought me in and started interrogating me. Now, Tyler, I know we'd never do this, you, but you know, we, we've got to take these accusations seriously. And my father passed that on to the leaders and said, no, you don't. You know him better than that. You didn't do that to any other kid. Why are you doing it to my, my son? My dad knew how to handle those things. That was hard, man. What are you supposed to say? How do you, how do you prove you didn't do something, right? Like, we were just, I don't know what to talk about. Well, maybe you guys shouldn't hang out the rest of the week, me and this girl. It was really messed up that happened. I was accused one time of cultivating a cult of personality in our youth ministry. That was very bizarre. I didn't handle that one very well. I kind of like listen, oh, yeah, okay, well, look, that, that's not what's going on. When I look back on that now, I'm like, that was really messed up that he said that about me. Now, at least he only said it to my face. I mean, that's better than nothing, right? I was accused anonymously of being bad at communication. <laughs> Turned out by the person I had asked in the ministry to help me with communication. And that person went behind my back and he gave, sent an email to my dad and my dad and I were having lunch and my dad is a pastor and he said, hey, do you want to handle this or should I? Slid the email over to me. That's how you handle false accusation. He did it right. He's like, I'm not going to have this weird backdoor conversation. You go talk to him. The irony on that one was pretty delicious, I must say. <laughs> and then he wouldn't admit it until I threatened to say it in front of everybody. I said, well, we'll ask everybody and we'll see who it was. All right, it was me. I've been there. I know how it feels. And I can tell you that God is good. And if you stand your ground and don't, don't cringe before these people, God will take good care of you.
And godly people should take care of one another. Well, that's a pretty serious accusation. We should take it seriously. Not without the evidence of two or three witnesses. Well, they might get away with it. Well, you will, at the worst, have been obeying God's word. And God will handle them, and he'll bless you for it. So the lesson is here. Don't be hasty to accuse somebody who is more spiritual than you. Men of God, if you are one of those people, let God fight for you. He'll do a better job. Just looked at what happened in verse 10. When the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous like snow. And Aaron turned toward Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. And Aaron said to Moses, Oh, my Lord, please do not punish us, because we've done foolishly and have sinned. Let her not be as one dead, whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes out of his mother's womb. And Moses cried to the Lord, Oh, God, please heal her, please. But the Lord said to Moses, If your father, if her father had but spit in her face, should she not be shamed seven days? Let her be shut outside the camp seven days, and after that she may be brought in again. So Miriam was shut outside the camp seven days, and the people did not set out on the march until Miriam was brought in again. After that, the people set out from Hazarot and camped in the wilderness of Paran. God afflicted Miriam with leprosy. Now here's the irony. She was upset that Moses had married someone with a dark skin tone. So God afflicted her with leprosy that made her skin white like snow with her disease. You like light skin, Miriam? Here you go. God was really getting on her. God compares this to spitting in her face. Now, Aaron was not struck. I think there's a couple reasons. Number one, it's very plain. He was not the instigator. Aaron was a follower, unfortunately. Also, because he was the priest, and he had a holy job and was never to be made unclean. And also because he repented first. And Moses cries out to God. God relents from killing her with the leprosy. But he does insist that she bear her shame. He's like, she can be leprous. For seven days, just like she would be if she actually had contracted leprosy. And everybody's going to know why and that it was me that did this to her. It's going to be shameful, Lord. Yep, that's the point. Remember, the cleansing ritual for leprosy was you had to be investigated for seven days to make sure you had no leprosy. They would perform the, uh, the sacrifice with the birds and dripping of the blood outside the camp. They would shave her head and her eyebrows and every hair on her body. And then she could come back into society. So not only that, all her hair would have been cut off. It's one thing for a man to experience that. Another thing for a woman to experience that. Can I just say very briefly in passing, but I thought about this as we were going through it. I'm noticing in the capital C church at large, in our attempts to be kind, or maybe this is just influence of feminist theologians, way too many churches are afraid to call out female misconduct in the church they're afraid it's going to come across as oppressive. I see this all the time. A guy does something wrong. Oh, we know how to handle that. But then there'll be like the ladies circle or the women's deaconesses group that cause all kinds of trouble. We don't want to deal with it because, well, we're supposed to love our wives, right? You cannot rob somebody of the appropriate discipline that they need in the church because discipline works for a person's sanctification. And when you let somebody get away with something, even if they're a woman, because you're afraid of some cultural backlash, you're doing them a disservice. But look at this, though. The people waited for her. They didn't move on. She was honored among the people. They weren't casting her out. She was being shamed. Seven-day timeout from the Lord. And then they move on from Hazarot. Apparently, they were at the same place where they had uh, experienced the quail. They hadn't moved on yet. God does not take false accusation lightly, especially of his leaders. 
Some people want to like, they'll write a big long article of this person is a, is a this and a that and look what they've done and they've damaged it and it turns out none of it was true and they go, oh yeah, sorry. No, 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 it's not that easy. Yeah, everybody saw this, so you better make sure everybody hears the other thing too. That's how God handles it. But what stands out to me in this passage is the intercession of Moses. He prays for his sister despite what she had done to him. And it also seems like God would have been content to leave her that way if Moses had not intervened. He interceded for his sister. He had an opportunity to demonstrate. I'm talking about heaping burning coals on someone's head. Moses is too arrogant and too prideful. And she gets afflicted with leprosy and Moses intervenes with God to get her out of it. Samuel said in 1 Samuel 12, 23, Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and right way. This is the part of leadership that Miriam didn't consider when she was envying Moses. This is the part of leadership that nobody thinks about when they think about wanting to be in charge, wanting to be the boss, wanting to be the bishop, wanting to be, which the Bible says that's a good thing to desire. But when you envy a spiritual leader, what you often forget is the daily heartache for the people that are under your care, the passionate intercession that you go through. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty eight, 28, Paul said, I will gladly spend and be spent for your sake, even though the more I love you, it seems like the less you love me. Jesus interceded for his apostles. He still does. Paul, at the beginning of every letter, I have been praying for you upon every mention of you in my prayers. Moses, many times, brought these people right back from the brink. A bunch of ingrates, but he continued to do it. And I intercede for all of you. Used to be the day was I had a list of everybody that attended the church. I could pray by, for my name, all of them, every day. A little bigger now. But I pray for you all, all the time, every day. I feel your pain. This is the hard part. Many people who want to be leaders, they want the prestige of being the leader. They want the task. They want to be able to study and preach to people. They want to be able to organize big endeavors that are going to change the world, but they never consider that their job is to be a shepherd, and a shepherd is to take care of sheep. That's what a pastor is. You can hear the, the relation between the word pastor and the word pasture, where the sheep graze, because they're related. It's a shepherd. A shepherd doesn't just... You know, it's not a high prestige position. He doesn't just stand there with his staff and look majestic. He's got to keep the sheep in line. He's got to fight off the lions and the bears and the wolves. And the next day, the sheep aren't saying, thank you so much for that. They go right back about their business. He's got to take care of them when they're sick. He's got to set their legs when the bones break. He's got to deliver the little lambs. That's what a pastor's job is. But that's what true leadership is. To love the people in the church. And this is very often thankless love because it's expected. I'm not complaining. I'm just telling you this is how it is. It's thankless most of the time. It's not often appreciated. It's often rejected. I've said before, one of the hardest things in ministry is when you love somebody and you go out of your way to help them and then they just blow you off and they blame you for their problems. But you can't quit. You've got to keep going. Mark 10, 42 through 45, Jesus called his disciples to himself and he said, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you, 
I don't mind saying it. I want to be great in God's kingdom. How do I get there? Whoever will be great must be your servant. And whoever will be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. One of the biggest temptations I experienced early in ministry as a young pastor was recognizing that all the labor I was doing was for somebody else, for somebody else's family, somebody else's edification. And on top of all that, I've also got to look after myself. I've got to make sure that I'm strengthened in the Lord so that I can go back and help these people. Pastors say all kinds of nasty things, like ministry would be great if it wasn't for the people. Ministry is the people. You have to learn. This is something I used to, I used to help train guys on staff and train young pastors in Lynchburg. And I'm like, oh, they, just, they keep calling. They keep on wanting to talk. I'm like, you stop. That's not interrupting your ministry. That is your ministry. That is what you're doing. This email that needs to be answered because somebody is angry about something, that's the job. This phone call from somebody that's, that's fallen in sin again, that's your duty. Somebody's sick and in the hospital and you've got to get up and go and leave your kid's baseball game, that's the job. It's not interrupting the job of, of teaching and being a scholar. You want to do that? Go work in a seminary. They'll let you do it. You don't have to pastor anybody. All you've got to do is teach. And here's the sad thing. Not the sad thing, it's a good thing. And I realize I'm going long, I'm sorry. But the pastor will always love the congregation more than they love him if he's doing it right. The pastor, well, I'll say, the people will always mean more to the pastor than he does to them. I say, these people mean so much. This is everybody. I, mean, this is everybody. I know. <laughs> I don't have other places. I don't have other people. I don't have a workplace. I, this is it. And you pour your lives into these people. And we care about you and we love on you. And I think about you all the time and I pray for you. But not, I'm not accusing anybody of anything. I'm just, I'm just explaining to you that that some people will just, will just get up and go because of something you said. Maybe they caught you on your worst day and you, you, you give you know, 200 sermons a year and you give one where you misspeak and now they're gone forever. It hurts when everybody gets invited to something and you don't. Now listen, you can't be invited to everything. It should be that way. I'm not complaining. I'm, I wouldn't trade this for anything. But especially when I was young, man, I'm still young, but I mean younger, it was difficult to be like, they didn't invite me because they know I'm the pastor and they don't want me there. And we're here at home. But that's the job. That's the job. Moses knew that. These people just accuse that. Moses is going to get beaten, slapped upside the head over and over again. And yet Moses keeps on going back to the Lord and getting on his knees and praying for him. Even when false accusations come to a pastor, it's not the accusation that bothers us so much as where it comes from. We're always shocked. I think for Jesus, that kiss of Judas hurt him worse than the crown of thorns did. Judas, with a kiss, with a kind word and a handshake, with a see you next time, with a great word today, pastor, that's how you're going to betray me? That's how you're going to bring me down, complain about me, spread word about me all over town, send me to the cross? But Jesus did that. Jesus took the false accusations for us. And that's what I'm called to do. And y'all, that's what you're called to do too, for each other. You know, talking like this, you'd think I'd be getting miserable about it. It just makes me excited that I get to do this. Because I know that the Lord has given me the strength to endure through that. That's why, God, that's why it's a calling to be the, the leader in the church. 
Because you know you're going to go through things that you're going to go, I could have been a plumber. <laughs> Nobody cares what the plumber thinks about the book of Revelation. But now people want to know what I think about everything. And they're upset and they're you're forming these committees against me and they're trying to bring me down and they're going to go start a new church. You know, the first church of the not this guy down the road. And, but I think about that and like, Lord, I can take it. And Jesus, I can take it. That gets me so excited. I can, the Lord has empowered me to be able to go to places and do things that he doesn't gift everybody to do. But the price of that, as Paul said, is my daily distress for all the churches. But Paul wouldn't trade it. Jesus certainly wouldn't trade it. And I wouldn't either. You are my joy and my crown, as Paul said to the Thessalonians. So we come to the end. Miriam and Aaron were put in their place by the Lord. We ought to do the same thing to each other. If you've got to be a little bit like that with somebody, you go for it. And I think our church does that very well. I commend you for that. Don't allow your envy to be cloaked by prejudice or personal opinion and turn to accusation and gossip. When an accusation comes at you, you don't have to accept it at face value. Let God fight for you if you know that you're in the wrong or in the right. If you're in the wrong, repent and get back to work. But if it's a false accusation, God's got you. And when the end of it comes, you as a leader, you as a Christian, need to be able to imitate Christ, take the blows on yourself for somebody else, and still get on your knees and intercede for them. As Peter says, when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Let's make sure that Calvary Chapel is not an accusatory church. Because our salvation is based upon a man who took false accusation upon himself for us. Remember that the person you're about to accuse has already been accused and justified. Don't take that lightly. Let love rule over every interaction. And this place will become a very special place where there's going to be grace for everybody who comes. And that's how we change the world.